It seemed like a good idea at the time. Three days in ultimate seclusion. The flakes that started to fall on your way were hardly worth notice. But now the polar vortex is locked over Canada and, as the drifts creep up to the windows, you feel foolish being miles and miles from any neighbor or route plowed by a road commission. The generator ran out of gas yesterday. But there's plenty of lamp oil and wood for the stove. Surprisingly, your call for help was met with something like joy. An acquaintance has a snowmobile with enough gas for a one-way trip. They're bringing people, food, supplies, beverages, and, if they heard your plea as the last milliamp slipped from your phone, games. That's right, soon you'll be Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon is a discussion with Northwest Michigan residents, or in this case frequent visitors, about life, the pursuit of happiness, and the four tabletop games they'd like to get stuck with in a fictitious snowpocalypse. I'm your host, Jim Maratsky, and today, across the interwebs, as we all keep our social distance, we're joined by Emily Halls. Emily, welcome to Snowmageddon. Thank you. I'm very excited to, to be here. Well, we're <laughs> super glad to have you with us today, that's for sure. So my first question, as usual, is uh, how difficult was it to choose the four games that you've picked and what criteria did you use? It was a little bit difficult to narrow it down. Um, I started getting into board games in my junior year of college when uh, and a fraternity brother that I had had kind of regular game nights in his dorm. So I got to play a lot of uh, different board games through that. And kind of picking four was a little bit difficult. But uh, the criteria that I used basically was which ones do I frequently come back to the most? Um, I have a few friends from high school that I, I continue to play these games with on a, on a somewhat regular basis uh, and games that I really enjoy teaching others how to play. So, yeah, that's pretty much my process, I guess. <laughs> okay. So our little conceit here is that, you know, you're out you've decided to go out in the middle of nowhere and a huge snowstorm has gotten you stuck there. And it's pretty ironic since we're all kind of stuck in our own places now. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if, if that original scenario of, of seeking solitude out in the middle of no place and having a snowstorm happen would apply to you or not. Are you somebody who would go out and seek that solitude? Uh, I don't think I would seek solitude without other people for sure. Um, I'm a little bit uh, sort of a mishmash of introvert and extrovert, I suppose. I do value my alone time, but I go a little bit nuts if I'm not <laughs> regularly interacting with other people, which is why I'm glad that I've got, you know, my dad and my cat and my brother all under one roof right now. <laughs> Super. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's move on then to your first game, which is a classic game designed by Bruce Glasgow and first published in 2004 by Avalon Hill. It's Betrayal at the House on the Hill, and it's uh, now out in a second edition. Uh, why do you hope this is available in Snowmageddon? I think you can play this game a ton and get different scenarios every time. The I think it's something like 50 different scenarios that you can play I think is really intriguing and you know the the way that you play the map looks different each time you play and there's a lot of variation in the characters and things that can go wrong and things that can go right and I just I think it's really intriguing and there's a lot of replay value in it for sure. So for folks that haven't played this could you just give us a quick overview of like how how it plays? 
Yeah. So the premise is that it's a little bit of a role-playing game. You're, you're a group of friends that are exploring a haunted house, and you start off in sort of this entryway. It's a little bit like Clue in that it's kind of spooky and you're exploring a different area, uh, different areas of the house, rather. And um, so you move your characters around the map and kind of discover rooms as you go. And when you discover those rooms, you can pick up items, you can uh, encounter different scenarios, or you can encounter something called an omen. And when an omen happens, you have to roll six dice and try and beat the number of omen cards that have been played. And if you do, uh, if you do beat it, then you're in the clear. But if you don't, then you activate the haunt, which is the second phase of the game where you have to try and uh, defeat a boss or figure out who the traitor of the game is. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so what sort of person is good to play this game with? Uh, I think someone that's wi willing to play a game for upwards of an hour. It's definitely kind of a long play. Someone that's willing to be collaborative with other players, at least for the first half of the game, where you're kind of sussing out the map and figuring out where you'd like things to go, what places you'd like to explore. You can kind of negotiate with the people that you're playing with. Well, if you go this way, I'll go this way, and we'll figure out more of the house that way. And then you also have to be able to to play with people who are um, a little bit creatively devious, because if, in the scenario that there's a traitor in the game, you know, it's not very interesting if you're still working together when the goal is to, you know, defeat one of your opponents. So you kind of have to be able to shift from collaboration in, in one way to collaboration to defeat a common enemy in the in the next half of the game so when you when you play uh do you hope that you are the traitor or not i have never personally been in a game where i was the traitor i've played a couple games where there there are a couple of situations or scenarios where there is no traitor and you're kind of playing against the game which is also kind of fun so i think yeah i i would like to be the traitor at, at some point it's definitely um, a different version of the game, like each, you suddenly get a, a different set of rules that you're playing by, which makes it really interesting. Yeah, that seems really neat that you can have a trader, or maybe not. It's not going to work out that way all the time, so uh, that really keeps you guessing. So I, I hear you on lots of replay value for this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about beginnings. You you mentioned that you started playing games in school, but could you talk a little bit about what hooked you on on playing games well i know when i was a kid um we used to do something at our house uh called unplugged tuesdays or thursdays i can't remember which day of the week it was but we kind of strived to have a night with no tvs no phones weren't quite as advanced as they are now but no cell phones no computers and just kind of hang out together as a family and we would often play games like Pictionary or Sorry or I'm trying to Scrabble, trying to remember a couple of the other ones that we did, but they, the Clue was one of them too. It was just kind of something we tried to do as a family. And then growing up, my, my brother and I both got into a ton of extracurriculars and we didn't really have uh, that time to connect as often as we had in the past. And then I, I sort of I really enjoyed spending time with people in that way. And so when the opportunity presented itself again in college, I, I really jumped at that and I got to to hang out with my friends and we all uh, kind of grew closer as a result of playing those games. So I like the, the human connection aspect of it for sure. So 
Uh, you are a music teacher, and we'll talk a little bit more about how that goes in a bit, but uh, I'm just curious to know if you would tell us a little bit about how you started on a musical path. Yeah, my, my parents actually met, uh, as you may or may not remember, in the Spartan marching band. <laughs> so music was always a really, really important part uh, of my life and my family growing up to the point where it wasn't so much, do you want to join band as it was, what instrument do you want to play? And, you know, I never felt aggressively forced or cornered into that. It was something that I had really wanted to try um, for a long time. And then I finally got into band and it it's it wound up being a really great activity for me. I loved it. I loved the creative expression that I got to have. I love meeting the people in band and getting to getting to grow close with those people every day in class. And then when it came time for me to start thinking about what do I want to pursue, you know, professionally, I was like, well, this is something that I'm good at and it makes me happy, you know, so everyone kind of has to figure out that balance between what can I make money doing and what am I going to have a fulfilling career doing? And I think uh, music and, and teaching in particular is a good intersection of that for me. One of the things that you and I have in common along with your folks is that uh, we're all alumni of the Michigan State Marching Band. Um, was that an important part of your college experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I actually didn't make it my freshman year. Um, and I felt that that was sort of a blessing in disguise. It let me get acclimated to college in a way that I wasn't sure I maybe would have had um, the time to focus on to really get settled. Because that's a, that's a big transition in the first place going from high school to college and moving away from home. And I was kind of, I wound up being grateful for the opportunity to get settled into study habits and um, getting to meet people in the, in the clarinet studio in the college of music because clarinet is my primary instrument. But at the end of the year, I still felt a little bit lost. And then when I did make the cut my second year of the marching band, uh, and joined the band fraternity Kappa Kappa Psi. That's where I really, that's where I really found my sort of my people, my my home away from home. Okay, so getting back to games a little bit, I've seen some informal polls that say most board gamers are either teachers or programmers because you need to be a process person to enjoy <laughs> board games. Um, I'm just curious to know what you think about that. I think that makes. A lot of sense now that I think about it. And I actually have a, a co-worker that I, uh, I'm a first year teacher. So I'm, I'm working in the Clarkston School District right now in um, Metro Detroit area of Michigan. And one of my co-workers actually is um, also an elementary music teacher and he's taking night classes to be a programmer. And he is also a board game enthusiast. So, you know, that, uh, that really tracks for him at least. <laughs> there you go. Get all three. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, well, let's move on to your second game. Your second game was uh, was pretty popular before, and now it's more popular, I think, because it can be played over video chat or via spreadsheet or that sort of thing here in, as we're social distancing. But it was designed by Vlad Echvatel and published in 2015 by Czech Games Edition. So why is Codenames coming along to Snowmageddon? Codenames is another one that has a lot of replay value because there's these little map cards that you can use and you can really just rotate it for four completely different games using the same cards. Um, and aside from that, the, the cards that you use, there's probably at least a couple hundred of them. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm kind of guessing off of memory, but there's just a billion different ways to play and having to kind of 
get on the same wavelength as the people that you're playing with and having that challenge I think is really interesting and I always love trying to come up with creative ways to summarize in one word the connection that two seemingly completely unrelated things might have. So this is a great game for a larger group of folks because really any number of people can play it. But this is a very different game from, say, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Do you think people who normally wouldn't play a game like Betrayal at House on the Hill would play Codenames? Yeah, I think it's it's got a lot of the same sort of replay value where you can play it a bunch of different times and and not really have the same game twice, but it's a lot quicker. So for someone that's maybe not as inclined to spend an hour and a half to three hours playing a game, it's it's a lot of that same, you can do a lot of rounds of this right in a row and they're all different and sometimes they can be quite comical to uh, to see what some people think of as, as connecting words for, for certain other things, bridges between certain words. Do you enjoy being the spy master or would you rather just be a player or how do you think about that? I like being the spy master because I like pushing the the bounds of my mind to to build those bridges and see how how many words I can connect in one turn. Um and I have a lot of I have some friends that that really enjoy I know it's technically a rule that you're not supposed to say this is a stretch, but but a lot of us really like to push the boundaries and we know that about each other. So we can kind of just with a raise of the eyebrow or like a sharp inhale, we can be like, maybe this will work. Maybe it won't. I hope you're on the ride with me. Um, and when you play with people that you're really on that wavelength with, it can be really interesting to, to see where that leads. Okay, let's rewind to pre-virus times. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you teach elementary music in Clarkson. Um, what What is a typical day of a music teacher in an elementary setting, if there is a typical day? So just due to the nature of elementary school students, I don't know that there's such a thing as a typical day. Um, they all look really different, and that's one of the great things about the job. Um, but I can definitely talk about my usual schedule and how that goes. I know that my coworkers, we don't all have the same kind of day-to-day -day routine uh, at all the different schools in Clarkston, but my daily routine is that, you know, I get up, get ready for work, and I get there around 7.45, and I've got about an hour of planning time, so I usually use that time to run copies that I need for the day or look over my lesson plans and see if there's any last-minute changes I'd like to make anything that I look at again and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure that's going to jive. Or as is the case, one time I, I walked in and didn't realize that it was pajama day. So I had to change a couple of things because I knew that the kids were going to be bouncing off the walls. So I didn't want to give them any, you know, fragile equipment that day. Um, and then I have the age groups are split up kind of uh, oddly. I have third grade, second grade, fourth grade, and then my lunch break. And then the weird, the biggest jump is fifth grade to kindergarten to first grade, and then my day ends. So having to make that sort of cognitive leap from, okay, these kids are almost in middle school. They're basically, you know, they're learning how appropriately they can use sarcasm to kindergartners who are just hugging you around the knees and asking if they were good that day. Um, really uh, changes the way that you behave and you teach between those two classes, and it's sometimes a difficult switch to make. So do you like actually teach instruments or do you, I mean, what, what is the, the sort of musical pedagogy at this point? Are you just trying to get them used to rhythms or that kind of thing? Or what, what is it that you are teaching them? 
Yeah, we do. Uh, well, I do a little bit of everything with every grade, but the the depth with which you get into it varies a lot. So like with kindergartners, I'll do repeating chants like um, tap, tap, tap the beat, listen first, then repeat. And then I'll do like some tapping thing or I'll, I'll give a pattern like ba, 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 and they have to repeat it. And then by the time you get up into fifth grade, they're, they're reading notation, right? So they're seeing it on the board and they're being able, they're able to say, this is a quarter note, two eighth notes. Okay. One, two, and whatever. Um, and then as far as instruments go, the older kids get to do more complex things. Um, like fifth graders are often, uh, they're doing recorders, they're doing ORF instruments, they're, we had just started ukuleles before uh, the schools got shut down, so that's really a bummer that I can't do that with them. And then we were doing ukuleles all the way down to second grade, ORF instruments down to first grade, and then the kindergartners were basically just getting egg shakers and learning to tap their bodies and what is and isn't appropriate movement at the time. So you have to teach them how to be responsible before you give them something that they can, that they can break. So I got to ask, what are ORF instruments? Oh, sorry. Yeah. ORF instruments are um, mallet percussion instruments that are kind of on a smaller scale. So it's, it's like a two octave xylophone or a, a metallophone, like a vibraphone. So it's basically. Great. You give them uh, notated music to play, or are you just playing on those that, follow along with you or that kind of thing for the older kids i work more with uh re like notation like they can see the egbdf the treble staff but for the younger kids it's a lot of rote learning um and pedagogically i was trained in the uh the the gordon style of music learning which encourages a lot of rote learning and and teaching kids to hear different things about music before they they learn what it looks like kind of how we learn language, you know, like you don't teach a, a toddler to, to read and write. You you teach them different vocabulary and then they, they learn the reading and writing portion a little bit later. So this is sort of a, a similar model for music learning, this, this Gordon music learning theory. Cool. All right. So uh, sometimes you're also a substitute teacher. Do you, you work in all grades with that or still just in elementary? I do. I, I get placed primarily in elementary buildings um, just out of happenstance. They place me wherever there's a need, but I've subbed at, at every level in the district. Yeah. So we know there's a lot of challenges of being a substitute teacher. That's sort of a, a standard thing. But are, is there anything joyful about being a substitute? Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets me familiar with the different students in the district, and it's kind of funny to see, like, oh, you are definitely the older sibling of one of my uh, regular music students, which has happened to me a couple times, and then that younger sibling will see me in the music classroom and be all starry-eyed that I was in their older sibling's classroom, which is really funny. <laughs> and just being able to still engage with different uh, subject areas, because I thought about being a teacher in a couple different subject areas before I had uh, settled on music. So still, I think I'm always, I'm, I've always been a person that, that likes learning new things really regardless of the subject area. So being able to see the, the different lessons that kids are learning is really cool sometimes. 
So it looks like there's probably not going to be any in-person school for the rest of this school year. Do you think the parents are prepared for that? I, I have to say no. I think this is an unprecedented time for for all of us right now. And I've seen a lot of very funny posts on social media that have gone viral that I very much appreciate from stressed out parents who are saying things like when we come out of this teacher's salary should be doubled or teachers should make $1 billion a year. <laughs> um, so I appreciate that. And um, I think maybe that is in the weirdest kind of kind of a little bit of a nasty silver lining parents are, are realizing how the how much work we put into a day and, and how difficult it can be. But it's also, you know, so joyful as I'm sure parents are glad to be spending time with their their kids. But you know, it's unprecedented. There's a lot of stress from um fear of the situation. There's a lot of um routines that have been interrupted for everyone. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm it would be overwhelming even if there wasn't uh, a pandemic happening, I'm sure. I mean, how do the kids you know, how do you think they'll deal with with this situation? Do, do kids need need school or that society, or do you think they'll they'll be okay? I think that school is a is an important structure for kids to to provide routine, to provide social interaction, to provide uh, structure in their lives. I <laughs> I had overheard some some fourth graders in a classroom that I was subbing in just before the schools had been closed saying that, you know, oh, if they give me online work, I'm just going to ignore it and I'm going to play Fortnite all day. And, you know, I'm sure I would have been similarly inclined when I was a kid. But, you know, as an adult, having gone through the schooling process, I know that for me personally, if I do nothing but look at a computer screen all day, I just feel sick to my stomach. So I think school is is definitely important in 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 many ways there are different there are definitely um lots of ways to to learn other than the brick and mortar buildings but i think they are an important structure and, and place for kids to kind of have that place they go where the mindset is i'm going to learn today i'm going to see my friends i'm gonna eat lunch or breakfast or play outside um having that kind of specified place i think helps frame the the kids for that mindset Great. So you are super creative. Um, what what other kind of projects or things are you working on these days? I have been doing quite a bit of sewing now that I have the <laughs> time to do so. We meet um, the way that our school district is handling the, the pandemic situation is that we send out uh, one music lesson per grade per week. So my colleagues and I get together on a, a Google Meet and, and plan that once a week. And we just got off of our spring break, so we didn't have a meeting this week. But um, I've been doing a lot of sewing. I made myself uh, a shirt, and I actually spent most of yesterday cutting up material to uh, sew some homemade masks to uh, to donate to area hospitals um, because, um, you know, there's obviously shortages everywhere. And if I have a skill set that can be beneficial during this time, you know, I would I would like to be able to use that. That's great. Thank you for doing that. You also have a cat that I I saw is a retriever. That's kind of an amazing <laughs> amazing <laughs> uh, feature of a cat, I guess. Uh, tell me more about how you met Fiona. Uh, yeah, that is, I think, probably the craziest thing about my cat is that she genuinely loves to play fetch. We actually did that a little bit this morning while I was eating breakfast. <laughs> 
I knew for a while when I was in college that I had wanted sort of a pet companion. I grew up with with two dogs in the house. And so I, I, I've always loved pets. My brother had a couple hamsters and I had never, oh wait, I did have a rabbit. I almost forgot about that. <laughs> but I wanted sort of, you know, I had, I was living in an apartment or a dorm and I only saw, you know, my dogs at home when I came home for one or two week stretches. And I was getting a little bit lonely. I wanted the pet companion up at school. So I started looking into where I could get an animal. And I knew that I wanted to go to uh, a shelter rather than a breeder, both mainly because I, I wanted to adopt an animal that otherwise might not have found a home. But I also, you know, what college age kid can afford like a, a purebred kitten? And I'm not even sure that's a thing. I'm just thinking of the dog world because that's what I uh, grew up with. But um I was looking at pictures online and I just saw this this sweet little orange face and I went into the shelter the next in the next couple of days with my roommate and played with her and then took her home. Okay, well, your third game is another classic that could be said to have founded Eurogaming in the US. It was designed by Klaus Teuber and originally published in 1995. This is Settlers of Catan or I think the current publisher Catan Studios would rather we just call it Catan, but tell <laughs> us why you want to bring this along. I've always kind of described Catan as Monopoly, if Monopoly made sense to me. Um, I tried Monopoly as a kid, and I never really understood the, 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 the formal rule set. I understood it as you move the pieces around the board, and you buy real estate, and then money is exchanged for three hours until someone gets frustrated and flips the board over. And, you know, that <laughs> that might get me some flack from people that really enjoy Monopoly, but I, I never could really get invested in it. But um, Catan, I like, again, you know, each each time the game looks looks different. The, the different tiles um, get set up pretty randomly each time, and there's a lot of different resources that you can gather and ways to strategize where you'd like to place your settlements to, to, to get the most out of those resources. And, of, of course, the robber makes things interesting when you're trying to sort of put a block in the road of, of your opponent's. So some people criticize this game because, you know, once folks know how to play, the the bidding for, you know, exchange of resources is kind of challenging. And then also the where you place your first village is kind of super critical. Do you, mm -hmm. do you agree? Is this a difficult game to teach because of that? Or is that just sour grapes of, from people and, uh, and it, it's okay to, uh, to move forward with a game like this? Uh, whenever I try to teach people, I usually sort of give hints. I was a little bit devious when I taught my parents. I didn't give them the benefit of knowing that where you place your settlements makes it a, a big deal for the rest of the game. So my mom actually got quite frustrated and frequently said, and mom gets nothing, surprise, because she had her, her settlement at the intersection of like a 12 and a 2 or something. So I was a little bit devious in that respect, but... I find it um, easier with, with most games to, to kind of explain it as I go rather than just dump all of the information out at once. So usually when I teach a game, I'll not just Catan, but any game I'll do, you know, like open hand and I'll talk through a turn rather than just, this is how you do your turn. This is step one, step two, step three, step four. Okay, and then this is the goal. This is some roadblocks, uh, that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's a lot of information to process at once, and it can be difficult to remember it. So you're a school of hard knocks kind of teacher when it comes to board games, and that 
losing is a good lesson for people to uh, to learn how to play, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, I had that kind of thrown in my face the other uh, couple months ago with some friends when they were teaching me uh, a new game, and I I misinterpreted a couple of the of the rules and ended up losing that game pretty pretty badly. Um, <laughs> That was a little bit of a sore loser, so that's maybe changed the way that I think about that now. <laughs> okay. So do you think gaming, playing like tabletop games has a role in society? Do games matter? I think they do, yeah. Um, I think I think any art form, uh, entertainment has a role in society. You know, I don't think we're just put here to to live and breathe and eat and work and then just kind of pass on to the next whatever there is. I think there's definitely a, a valuable place for the arts. And I think gaming is, you know, the people that build the games, obviously there's artwork that goes into the pieces of the game. There's artwork that goes into, it's an art form designing the game and making it cohesive. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, leisure is, is really important in, in human society and gaming is a, a really great way to, to fill that leisure time. What's the main ingredient for you for a favorite experience while you're playing a tabletop game? Is it the aesthetics, the strategy, burying your opponents, um, something, <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you like about an experience? Uh, I think the thing I like the most about gaming experiences is play, like playing with the, the right people, people who are willing to, to laugh and be good sports. Um, I don't love games where the, the object is total domination over your opponents because I think that breeds a little bit more competitive spirit than I'm I'm usually interested in. You know, I, I am to some degree school of hard knocks when it comes to, to winning or losing, but that's usually only one or two games in. But I, you know, I like to play with people that are sort of at the same understanding level that I am. And I like to, to build each other up to make the game more interesting and competitive. So it's, it's challenging for all of us, for sure. You said that you started playing Dungeons and Dragons. What attracts you about that? And tell me a little bit more about that experience. I actually started, um, a lot of my fraternity brothers in college uh, got really into Dungeons and Dragons. And my first, you know, Stranger Things, that was a big component of that. And it kind of, piqued my interest when that show came out on Netflix. And then I actually had a friend tell me about, I think the, the genre is called an actual play podcast of these, these three brothers and their father who played Dungeons and Dragons together and record the whole thing. Uh, and it's called the Adventure Zone. And I had a friend tell me, you know, Dungeons and Dragons aside, it's a really awesome story that they're telling. You should give it a listen. And I did, and I just totally fell in love with the story that they were telling and the, the characters that they were creating and the situations that they were in. And I wanted to to try that for myself. And it turns out a lot of my my friends had the same inclination. They wanted to to try that kind of storytelling medium as well as the the gameplay. Um, and so I kind of tried to to find my way into some campaigns. And I have a group of girls that I went to high school with that we meet somewhat regularly and, and get together and do that. So that's been that's been really awesome to kind of get to experience that. But I definitely, when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, lean more towards the the role playing and storytelling than the the combat and dice rolling side of it. I usually use like the the style of play that I use, and that's heavily influenced by this podcast that I listen to. Is um the the 
the rolls of the dice influence the narrative rather than um, just numbers on a piece of paper, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. Okay. Uh, your last game is one I had never heard of until you mentioned it. Uh, it was published in 2012 by Weird Miniatures and designed by Justin Gibbs and Mac Martin. Uh, why do you hope that evil baby orphanage comes to Snowmageddon? <laughs> oh, I love this game, and no one's ever heard of it, which is so great because I get to explain it, and it's awesome. So this game was based off of um, this query by these these two brothers that I was I was a devoted follower of in, in middle and high school called the, the Green Brothers, John and Hank Green. John Green... Um, is a, is a well-known young adult author and his brother Hank actually just published a book last year of his own and they have YouTube channels, they have a YouTube channel, excuse me, where they make educational content, they make sort of observational content, but they, they really, um, I admired their sort of brotherly spirit of wanting to put more good into the world. And so this game is kind of based on the moral quandary of if you could go back in time and kill Hitler as a baby, would you do it? With one side saying, well, of course you would, it's baby Hitler, and the other side saying, well, you can't do that, he's just a baby. So <laughs> the sort of nonsensical idea of kidnapping Hitler and raising him in a time pocket orphanage and raising him to be a good person before re-releasing him into the time stream was sort of the, uh, the idea behind this game. So you're um, kidnapping evil dictators or uh, just genuinely bad people like um, Typhoid Mary is one of the characters in the game and sort of trying to raise them, air quotes, to be better people. What kind of player do you need for something like this? Is it, uh, is it a real thinky game or, or, or is it just folks that want to go along with the theme and have fun with it or how does that work? Yeah, it's, to be honest, it's a quite a thinker. I have a few friends that have played one or two rounds and just gotten really uh, fed up with how much thinking goes into it. Each, each individual turn is actually five smaller action turns. So you have to be able to really balance a lot of spinning plates to be able to play. So I read a criticism of this game that, and this is just technical stuff, has nothing to do with the theme, I think, but it, uh, <laughs> it's a little too balanced. And so sometimes it's difficult to get to the end of it. Have you found that to be true? Or are you able to usually end the game in a reasonable amount of time? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's a lot like Betrayal where you can expect to play, if you're playing with people that are, you know, able to, to spin all the plates. Um, every game I've played has usually been about an hour and a half because the, the difficulty is you don't, you don't win the game at the end of your turn. You win the game at the beginning of your next turn. So if you have you know, if you've collected enough points at the end of your turn, you have to somehow manage through the actions of the rest of the people you're playing against to hold on to all of those points by the beginning of your next turn to win. So it can be quite difficult to to find a winner. And most of the time when I've played, the winner has been <laughs> achieved by accident, just by people that were not quite paying attention or just by happenstance of the actions of the cards that were in play. What do you see next for tabletop gaming for you? Is there any games that you'd like to play or any uh, games you'd like to play more or anything like that? I know we're in wacky times right now and who knows how that'll work. But anyway, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. 
I would really like a way to be able to play board games remotely for situations like this. Like I know I'm I'm glad to be in the house with other people, but um <laughs> my my dad and my brother are not uh as passionate about the the complicated as they say board games that I like. They like um things that aren't as uh difficult to manage with a lot fewer spinning plates. But I have, you know, FaceTime groups or Google meets with my friends and we we try to play these uh, board games, but then we realize, oh, well, we have to kind of suspend something from the ceiling to be able to see the board or we have to figure out some convoluted way where we all have the same setup going and we kind of describe what's happening. So I would really like for some, you know, ideally non-electronic way to play board games remotely, but I know that the technology for that is sort of uh, counterintuitive. But yeah, I don't know. I just... Uh, I like the connection aspect between people and there are certainly games you can play online, but I would like to be able to play my board games online as well, if that makes sense. Sure, it does. All right, my last formal question for you. Um, the snowmobile on the way to Snowmageddon that was bringing your games had to cross a river and on its way it hit the far bank and three of your games that you have chosen bounced out into the river and were washed away downstream. <gasps> Oh, no. As you unpack, which one of the games that you've chosen are you hoping is still there? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I think I'm going to have to go with code names. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to have to go with code names because there's so many different ways to, to, to play it that you can play it with a lot of different people. Um, you, you don't even technically need the the game pieces to play if you wanted to just use pieces of paper. So in the horrible scenario that actually all four had bounced out and it was actually, I don't know, a box of shoes that had made the, made the trek. Yeah. That's something that you could still play even without the game pieces, I suppose. But yeah. Well, super. I, I hope we never have to make that sort of decision, but anyway, Emily Halls, thank you so much for joining us here today in Snowmageddon. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Thanks again to Emily for being a good sport. Links to the games and other things we discussed can be found in the podcast website, gameinsnow.com. Website hosting is sponsored by Archipelago Creative LLC, makers of Mackinac Island Treasure Hunt card and board games at mackinawtreasure.com. This nice music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look out for more episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash gameinsnow. And if you have comments about this show or want to suggest or be a guest, please email me at gameinsnow at gmail.com. I'm Jim Muratsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>